What we've been doing this quarter in large group is going through the parables uh, that Jesus has told. If you haven't been with us, you're not familiar with parables. They're little stories, little illustrations. Jesus would tell his followers, people questioning him, people who didn't know who he was. And their purpose is he wanted these little stories to burrow into people's hearts and burrow into people's psyches and disturb us and to unsettle us. And disturb our, our assumptions about who God is, about how we think the world is supposed to operate, about who Jesus is, about who we are, about how we relate to God. And I think the parable that we're going to read tonight, the Pharisee and the tax collector, maybe some of you are familiar with it. I think if we engage this, this is the single most offensive story Jesus tells. Um, that if you're here... And whether or not you're a Christian or identify as a Christian, I think if, you, if you're not a Christian, if you listen to this parable on behalf of your Christian friends, I think you should be offended on their behalf. Um, but if you let this parable offend you the way in which Jesus intends it and unsettle us and get in us and make us feel really uncomfortable, he is saying there's far more hope that you're going to experience love and connection with God if you will let this parable really unnerve you. And so whether or not you personally identify as a Christian, before I read it, I want to ask you this question. Whether or not you identify as a Christian, what would you think of the man that I'm about to describe? Because this man shows up in the parable. This man, but we're going to place him in our modern day context, he is a leader in the local church. Whether it's MPPC, Peninsula Bible Church, Grace Press, he's a leader. He does a men's Bible study on Wednesday morning. Tons of men come to it. People enjoy bringing their friends. He's at church every Sunday. He stays away from the seedier parts of town. Um, he doesn't, you don't catch him socializing with the kind of people uh, that Christians don't socialize with. He stays away. Uh, he takes regular spiritual retreats. Uh, in hyper, crazy, busy Silicon Valley, which we all identify with, he doesn't wait for busyness to die down. He decided at the beginning of his career he's going to commit to fasting from work two days a month and taking spiritual retreats. He prays a lot. He prays several times a day. He's disciplined in it. He's a man of prayer. He doesn't struggle to pray like a lot of us do. He prays at church. Here's the other thing. He's very thankful. He's a very grateful person. Uh, when asked about any of the good things that come in his life, because we look at this kind of person, we're like, your, your lifestyle is truly remarkable. He answers with, I'm just grateful to God. Uh, I'm so thankful that my life situation is better than others and what could have been and the ugly situations I see around me. I thank God. He's a good person. He's a good person in his business practices. He is honest and he's upright with his money. And you all are going to find out if you haven't already, there's a ton of ethical gray area in money and in taxes when you kind of come into adulthood. But this is a man that's above reproach. Um, and everybody knows he has integrity. But not only does he have integrity in his business dealing, he's very generous. And when the church has a budget f- shortfall, he fills in the gap. When missionaries come raising support, he writes a check. Um, he steps up financially. He is a good husband. He's faithful to his wife. There were moments in college where he almost kind of went over that line, but he decided he was going to keep himself from marriage. He didn't have sex before he got married. He stuck it out. He never put himself in a situation where he's going to be tempted now that he's married, and he doesn't look at pornography. Would you want this type of man, and these men exist, and they're everywhere, 
to be your mentor. Especially if you identify as a Christian. Leader in the community, leader in the church. Man of prayer, faithful to his wife. Integrity, grateful to God. Would you want the equivalent woman to be your mentor? How many of us would say, if that was my repu- if that's who I was, that would be success? And if you're not a Christian, does that describe what you think a Christian looks like? Because this is the man Jesus describes. And I want you to pay attention to what Jesus says at the end of the parable. Here are his words. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector... Standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but instead beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to the house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this word, and it is frustrating, and I pray that you would frustrate us tonight that our hearts would be unsettled, that uh, the way we thought about things might be shaken a little bit, and that we would find in the words that you have to say that there's more hope and not less in what you have to say. In your name we pray. Amen. So what man went home right with God? Was it our Silicon Valley leader in the church, loves his wife, honest, prayerful, thankful man? Or was it the tax collector? Christian or not, we've all got to get really uncomfortable with what Jesus has said right here, or we're not hearing anything he said, because this is who the Pharisee was. The Pharisee is first a Bible expert, someone who teaches, someone who is admired by the community. He reads it, he knows it inside and out, he's memorized a large portion of it. He went to the temple to pray. The specific circumstance they're talking about right here is a regular evening worship service that happened at the temple. He probably went in the morning and in the evening. He was there all the time. He prayed. He prayed out loud during the time of prayer when anybody could join in. He stood by himself, and this is locational language Jesus is giving us about who he associated with. The kind of physical space we put between ourselves and others always tells us something. Right, actual physical location. And Jesus is saying, this man is a very committed Jew, and it meant that he separated himself from unsavory people. How often have you thought or seen, or maybe even yourself, identified Christians, or identified yourself as someone who avoids immoral people? That that's part of what it means to be Christian. That's what this guy is doing right here. He's separating himself from the seedier elements. He thanks God. He does. What every Christian's supposed to do in any kind of interview after a sporting event, right? He gives all the glory to God. So what he does in his prayer, right? He is grateful that he is not like others. He's not like the extortioners, the immoral business people, the sexually promiscuous, the liars. He's thankful that he's not them. He fasts twice a week. This is a committed, difficult, lifestyle-cramping devotion and he did it so he could pray more. And he gives money away. He gives money to the Lord. 
that's a Christian. But he's not the one who walks away justified. Who did? The tax collector did. Who is the tax collector? Here's who a tax collector is. That's the first detail. They were local Jews who bought regional tax rights from the local governors, the Gentile governors. What they were, they were turncoats. A governor, a local governor would say, I need to collect $10 million from this region. And Jewish tax collectors would come and buy that collection right, and then they go and extort their people. And the way they made money is if they're supposed to collect $10 million from Galilee for the local governor and taxes, their profit was whatever they could collect above that. So they were extortioners. And they were turncoats in their own people. They were Jews who worked against their own people and extorted them on behalf of the Roman government. They were not well received. And for that very reason, uh, this, fair, this tax collector knows that he doesn't belong, so he stands far off for a totally different reason. That's the next detail we learn about him. Right? Jesus is making a point about his physical location. The Pharisee separates himself from immoral people, seeing it wise and good not to be associated with him, but the Tax collector is standing far away the same way an immoral person apprehensively enters a church. Maybe even some of you. What, I don't know if I belong in RUF. These aren't, this is not quite my people. I don't know if I fit into the center of this crowd. The tax collector is sitting in the back row because he's pretty sure he doesn't belong. And if we wanted to make everybody in this room really uncomfortable right now, Jesus might be saying that those of you who sneak in late and leave quickly and sit in the back because you feel like you're not worthy to kind of belong or identify as a Christian because you don't have your ducks in a row, he might be saying that you're actually closer to being right with God than the rest of us. Now everybody's uncomfortable. Nobody wants to sit in the middle, right? Especially up front. That's the worst. Like, Luke, I don't like your chances, dude. You know? Luke's not coming back, but... (laughs) But that's where he is. He's in the back because he doesn't feel like he belongs. And he didn't look up when he prayed. Why didn't he look up? When my children have done something wrong, the main way you can tell is they won't look you in the eye. He's afraid of meeting the gaze of God. He's afraid of showing his face. He beats his chest. Why? Because it's the physical act of actually grieving what's in his heart. Our bodies and our souls are actually connected to each other, and oftentimes in our most honest and intense moments of self-understanding, we actually act out what's in our soul. And he's grieving what he knows to be true, what Jesus actually taught in Matthew 15, that out of his heart comes all the evil. That out of his heart comes evil thoughts and murder and theft and lies and slander and so on. That the evil started in here. He's grieving what comes out of his heart. And he prays, and actually the word here is not God be merciful to me. The word here is actually God make atonement for me. The regular word, Greek word for mercy that shows up through the rest of the gospel is eleos. That's not what shows up right here. Actually, the word that shows up right here is helaskomai. And this is the, the cool moment where I get to pretend like I went to seminary. Right? That Old Testament word is a word about... I did actually go to seminary. (laughs) But in some ways I didn't. But had two sets of twins while I was in seminary, so I don't remember a lot. Um, But he doesn't use the regular word for mercy. He uses a very specific word that referred to temple sacrifice. 
if you go back and read the Old Testament. And it's a word that's better, that's actually translated elsewhere in the New Testament as atonement. He's saying, God, make atonement for me. God, do something to reconcile you and me because I have nothing. I don't have any reason to give you for being my friend. There's nothing in my life that I should say, that I can say to you, shouldn't this make us right with each other? I don't have any reason to give you for you to love me. I don't have any reason to give you for you to forgive me. No reason to give you for you to bless me. No reason to give you for you to accept me. The prayer, make atonement for me, is the plea of someone who has no reason for God to like them. And just hopes that God has mercy. Who walks away right with God? This guy. Why? Jesus is warning us here that there is something deceptive and deadly, that there is a way that we can be disconnected from God and not even know it. Is sin, our badness, is it a barrier to God's saving and atoning grace? No. He is showing here the constant mega theme throughout all of Scripture that our sin is actually not a barrier to God's saving grace. Jesus is on the cross, and that's God's great picture of God's atoning work of taking away our sin so that we can be right with God. It is not our bad things that Jesus is warning us about right here. But a lot of times, that's what everybody thinks. Well, it's your bad things that are your great spiritual hindrance. If you're trying to be a Christian, if you're working it out, maybe if you're not trying to be a Christian and you're looking at Christians, we all assume the big thing that's really hindering connection and rightness between me and God is my bad stuff. Because the bad stuff's obvious. Porn, drunkenness, hooking up. Lack of discipline, anger, unwillingness to forgive, the grudge keeping, whatever it is, you know your vices that you are wrestling with. When we think that our vices that we're fighting, that we're asking God to forgive, we think those are our great spiritual hindrance to being right with God. And Jesus is saying that's not true. Here's the question What's the most dangerous enemy in any context? It is not the enemy that you know. It's not the enemy that you've identified, and it's not the enemy that you've been fighting. The greatest enemy in our spiritual lives is not our badness. That we recognize, that we repent of, that we seek forgiveness for, that we're fighting against. What is the most dangerous enemy in every context? It's the enemy you're not aware of. It's the enemy beside you. The greatest possible enemy is the enemy that you think is your friend. Jesus is actually saying that the greatest hindrance to being right with God is the way you think about your good things. Why? Because we trust our good things to be good enough. Who's the parable told to? He told this parable to someone, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. People who trusted in their own righteousness, who trusted that their good was good enough before God. We fight our bad. We all question our bad. We struggle with our bad. But do we, any, do we ever question our good? Why would we? Does it make sense? Our good really distinguished us from others in the first place. Just like it does with the Pharisee. It's his good that really distinguishes him from others, that gives him a sense of self. It makes us feel good. 
Jesus is saying our greatest spiritual hindrance is trusting that our good is good enough before God and that is a complete failure to understand the holiness and purity of God. Jesus is saying no one is right with God until you change your attitude, not just toward your bad things, but actually also toward your good things. Your good things do not make you right with God. And to believe so is to be lost. Have you experienced the emptiness and the insufficiency of the best things about you? The things for which you're congratulated, praised, your righteousness, the things that validate you. How do you know if you're in the place of this Pharisee, if we're in the place of trusting our own righteousness? Look at the Pharisee. You stay away from immoral people thinking that your manufactured righteousness makes you distinct from them, so you create space between you and the bad people, which is the exact opposite movement of Jesus' entire ministry, which is incarnation. It is coming from the pure place into the dirt with people. But one of the ways you know you're trusting your righteousness is you're always separating yourself from people you think you're better than. Right? You'll marginalize people who don't share your moral practices and your religious beliefs. You'll talk to God and others about how you're a good person in distinction from others. Your conversation about your religious life will not be filled with words about sorrow over sin, grief about what's in your heart, God's grace, the love of Jesus, rejoicing in His covenant love. The words of your religious life, when you speak about it, will be the good things you do and the bad things you don't do and the things you intend to do better. That's the Pharisee's prayer. One of the reasons that we do this weird stuff in our yuff, confession assurance, and we sing the particular songs we've chosen is because we're trying to give you the vocabulary for the kind of spirituality Jesus is talking about. And I think this is worth noting as well. That also one of the things that maybe many of us, what we think makes us better than others is, I'm not self-righteous like the religious people. I'm not self-righteous like the conservatives. I'm not self-righteous like the intolerant. I don't associate with them. You've created space between you and the religious people. I'm thankful that I'm not like them. I'm thankful I don't do what they do and I do other better things. And that is just another form of believing that what makes you the right sort of person is your nuanced Bay Area form of being righteous. The real key is that you find yourself... Justifiably, justifiably contemptuous of others. Maybe you're justifiably contemptuous of the immoral and the a-religious. Maybe you're justifiably contemptuous of the moral and the religious. These are the marks of someone trusting in their own righteousness, completely failing to understand that in the presence of God, our best things fall apart. And if you only ever repent of your sins and think, I've got to do business, I need Jesus to do business with my sins, you'll never fully understand the love of God and Jesus. The Christian is the one who says, my bad is not good enough and my good is not good enough. Lord, make atonement for me. The Christian is the one who sees that his or her good things, because they were touched by the very same heart, that all of my bad came out with, that my prayers and my service and my Bible reading and my church attendance and my giving and my attempts to be a loving person, my attempts at sexual purity, they're all corrupted by the same heart that also brings out all the badness. 
that my good deeds, that my best attempts at being a parent, that my best attempts at being a husband, that my best attempts at being hospitable or being a friend or at praying are full of insecurity. This is me, full of insecurity and fear and anger and lies and arrogance and unbelief. It's there with me in my best moments. I have to ask Jesus to forgive me for the way I teach all the Bible because I'm radically insecure and I want y'all to love me. And there's all kinds of pride and jealousy and covetousness going on in my heart as I'm speaking to you. And I'm even thinking that kind of being, showing my, bearing my soul to you might somehow make me more admirable. Jesus has to save me from preaching the gospel. My righteousness is no good. And that's why Jesus came not simply to take away the sins of the world, but he came to be our righteousness as well. Provide what theologians call an alien righteousness, one that is not your own but is given to you by God. Jesus doesn't take away sin. He provides a righteousness. Isaiah calls it a robe of righteousness. Paul in current, Church of Corinth says Jesus became our sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. You will go to God, either boasting in His righteousness or boasting in your own. Which do you think will be sufficient? The tax collector had nothing of his own to boast in. Asking God to make atonement, to provide a righteousness for him, and he went away right with God. He abandons trying to make a case for himself. And he pleased the mercy of the Lord. The Pharisee went boasting of his own righteousness, and he walked away having almost no understanding of the depths of of the riches of God's grace. Paul says in Romans 3.19 that when you finally understand who God is, when you understand the holiness of God, it does something very interesting. It shuts you up. He says it shuts your mouth. You realize how silly you sound and you stop running your mouth about your own righteousness and you just shut up. And maybe that's the application for some of us tonight. To shut up about how exceptionally Christian we think we are compared to others. How thankful we are that we're not like others. And if we're still running our mouth about those things, the great irony is that the form of Christianity that you're probably experiencing is just a weak, watered-down, pride-producing form of moralism that has a Christian vocabulary wrapped around it. And the reason that we Christians, myself included, can be so insufferable is because we've not read the Bible and we've not had our mouths shut by the purity and the holiness and the perfections of God. And so we haven't been humbled by the profound and generous grace of God. When you think about these two people, who do you think has greater faith in God and who do you think has a larger view of His grace? Would it be the person who says, hey, there's some work for God to do, I need you to do in my life. I'm pretty good, but I've got some vices I need you to help me handle. To forgive me some sins I struggle with. Or would it be the person who has seen into his own heart and seen through his bad things and seen through his good things and seen, wow, everything has been jacked up by my arrogant, insecure, proud heart. I've got nothing to bring to you to impress you, God. Even my good things There's not much there. Will you make atonement for me? Which one of those two people has greater faith? Which one of those two actually has a bigger view of who God is? Do you see that the unworthy person, fearful in the back row, 
not presuming to belong because you disagree with God, because you don't have moral cachet, because you have no spiritual capital to trade on. For that person to enter the presence of God and ask forgiveness is actually acting with greater faith and a larger view of God's grace. There's some incredible irony there, isn't there? And that means for, for us Christians, for the boasting, I'm so thankful I'm better than other Christian, that you maybe, and are you F, maybe at church, you need to look to the back row to find spiritual maturity. Maybe those are the people you need to be near and learn from. What should we do? I'll close with the solution. And the solution is given actually in the very next verses. They were bringing even children, even infants to him, that he might touch them. It's interesting, he t- this story immediately happens. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him saying, uh, they rebuked them, and Jesus called to them saying, let the children come to me, don't hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom like a child will not enter it. People are bringing infants to Jesus. And Jesus, they, they, they stop them, the disciples, because these are not people of status, they're not people of critical thinking, they don't understand your ministry. This is a waste of time for infants to come to Jesus, the great teacher and healer. Bring people with status, who are critical thinkers, who are adults, some people that have something to offer. And Jesus says, no, 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 stop it. Actually, it's people who come to me like these infants who will receive the kingdom of God. And if you don't come to me like these infants, you will not enter the kingdom of God. What is he saying when he's talking about receiving the kingdom of God like a child? What does an infant offer a household? Nothing. Actually, that's not true. What, do they offer help? No. Do they contribute to the home? They offer a mess. Infants are a net drag on a household. If you don't know this, uh, minors nine and eight, they're still a net drag on the resources of the household. I don't know when that turns over, but we're, I don't think we're close. Right? <laughs> they are a drag on our energy. They are a drag on our resources. They are not givers. They are takers. They are needy. They make our life messier and not cleaner. You know what, I talked about this a couple weeks ago. The sweetest, most frustrating time is actually when they try to offer something positive to the household. Right? They, so they make waffles on Saturday morning. Y'all can come and eat waffles on Saturday morning. Or they make crafts. And when they try to do something to actually contribute to the household, it's really sweet, but they make a bigger mess than if we had done it ourselves. Even their good acts actually create more work for us. We don't begrudge them that. It's fun. We're glad they try it. And we actually want them to continue to try it. But we sure as crap don't love them anymore because they try to offer something to the household. It makes us more tired (laughs) when they try to offer something to the household. Children are needy. They need everything. Their messes have to be cleaned up and their contributions have to be cleaned up. They offer only one thing and it is the reason that they are there. They offer the joy of their presence. We just like them being there. That's it. It's worth all the ridiculous amounts of energy and dollars we have spent on them just to have them. Just to have them. 
not have them to, like have them to do something. We just like them. That's all it is. We love them. We want to be with them, not because they've done something special, not because they've made their case of what they have they offer, not because they're righteous in any way. We just love them. Their presence is our joy. If your question is, why would God save somebody like me? Why would God die for someone like me? It's because your presence in his family is his joy. That's it. The answer doesn't go beyond that. You want to think, well, because you're productive or you're exceptional because you have something to offer. Nope. He even has to clean up, cleans up your messes. He even has to clean up your contributions. The worst thing I could imagine is if our children thought that their status in our household was determined by their obedience, by their contributions, by their good deeds, if they thought that our love waxed and waned with their righteousness levels. That would be a horrible home, wouldn't it? Children come to the family empty-handed, needing, and that's what Jesus is explaining to us. The Pharisee comes, laying aside his sin, but with hands full of all the things he admires about himself that he thinks sets him apart. And the tax collector comes with empty hands, asking for atoning love. The Pharisee is going to be bound to a life of radical religious insecurity and arrogance. This is the way one writer said it. You'll be drawing your assurance of acceptance with God from your, from your sincerity, from your past experience of conversion, from your recent religious performance, and your relative infrequency of conscious willful disobedience. And your insecurity is going to show itself in pride, a fierce defensive assertion of your own righteousness and defensive criticism of others. You will come naturally to hate other cultural styles in order to bolster your own security and discharge your suppressed anger. We will be insufferable religious people who are proud to be insufferable. And we are scared to admit we're insecure. But if we come as the tax collector with empty hands, nothing to boast in, He's a humbled, humbling person who's confident. Humbled and humbling because he knows his righteous deeds are silly. He doesn't try to hold them up to impress anybody anymore. And secure because his confidence and his assurance and his righteousness is in nothing that he brought, but it's in the grace of God. And the life and the death of Jesus on his behalf. So the question is, how will you come to God? Do you know that you will be far happier if you come to God with nothing in your hands. Let's pray.